Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey, Solar Warriors, welcome back to Tactical Tuesdays. This is episode 53 of Suncast. Tactical Tuesdays is a weekly, short-form conversation with subject matter experts to give you the edge in building your solar business and brand. And this week, we welcome Mika Nuotio of Empower Microsystems. He and I go deep on a ton of topics. We start with the nature of how the power electronics sector works and implications of that for the solar industry, inverters, etc. We look at what changes in the UL and NEC standards are driving inverter and module electronic architecture evolution. How is safety in the power electronics evolving? What is UL 1743 all about? How has it evolved and what implications are there for solar technology development? What about the 2014 or 2017 additions? What's new in that? And when is compliance required? What's this rule 21? And is the US leading or lagging in terms of grid integration and control standards? Hey, by the way, Mika, what is low voltage ride through and why is it important? Why is reactive power important? And can you help me explain that to someone else? And lastly, the NEC 680.2 code known commonly as rapid shutdown. Let's get the background information on that. Differences between the implementations of 2014 version and the 2017 version. And who's really driving this regulation? And when is compliance required? Mika really breaks things down to very specific details, but I think he manages to keep it approachable by the layman standards, which I totally appreciate. So tune in and tune up your skills, Solar Warriors. This is this week's Tactical Tuesday with Mika Nuotio. Today on Suncast, we're going to take a deep dive on a Suncast mini-sode with Mika Nuotio, the CEO and founder of Empower Microsystems. We had the genuine pleasure and fortune to bring another co-founder, John Bonanno, onto Suncast a few months back. And John suggested that we have some time with Mika because Mika really understands not just the nature of the way the power electronics regulation sector has worked, but its implications for the technology industry and the solar industry in particular. So there's a few things I wanted to dive into. So this is going to be a bit of a geek session here with Mika, looking from the perspective of a salesperson who might have to actually explain this stuff to their customers or product folks, maybe even solar module sales guys, for example, who still may not know the details, the nuance to why certain regulations with UL and the National Electric Code are driving certain changes in the power electronics industry, in particular around inverters. So Mika, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, sorry, that was a long intro for a short episode. Well, nonetheless, I know that this is going to be information packed. Well, 
let's start with the nature of how safety with regard to solar is evolving. You've been in the power electronics industry for quite a while, as you expressed earlier. How has the UL standard known as 1741 evolved over the last several years, and what implications does that have for solar in particular and the way that technology has developed? So if you're looking at safety standards for solar, UL 1741 is the U.S. standard for solar inverters. It actually covers two aspects. One is general safety considerations for power electronics equipment and making sure that the equipment doesn't hurt people, like catch fire or right. cause uh, shock hazards or things of that nature. But another portion of, of getting a UL 7041 safety certification, you have to ensure that you're compliant with being a grid interactive piece of power electronics. It's effectively a generator feeding into the grid. Right. And up until very recently, the United States was lagging behind the rest of the world in terms of providing smart inverter functionality that supports the grid. Yeah. Um, Germany was the first country that was leading this evolution and, and trying to go back from memory, I think it was 2010 or 11, very early on, because penetration in Germany of solar on the grid was growing rapidly and the utilities were getting concerned about the grid stability. If you only had a quote unquote dumb inverter, it just feeds power into the grid. Right. So in typical generator, whether it's fossil fuel or others, there are standards for how utility can control the power out. Uh -huh. And Europe led it, Germany, we had Italy, uh, Australia, and we took some events in Hawaii until mm -hmm. they started to become to the forefront in the United States that something had to be done to the US standard. Yeah. And an initiative was launched in, actually in California, mm -hmm. There's a specific grid interconnect regulation by the California Public Energy Commission, so it's called Rule 21, uh -huh. and that's also relatively ancient. Ah, yeah, I've heard of this Rule 21, and what does it mean? It's effectively a set of regulations for what you have to comply with in terms of requirements to connect the generator to the grid. Right, this is the anti-islanding and things like that, okay? Correct. Yeah. So what was added is smart inverter functionality. It was driven by California okay. and the, the CPUC in California. Got it. Industry was involved, utilities were involved, and really defining the set of standards and requirements and specifications for smart inverters. So grid interactive inverters providing features like reactive power mm -hmm. wow. or voltage support, dynamic VARs really being right. in response to voltage changes and low voltage ride-throughs. You know, are you going to explain low voltage? Because I think low voltage ride-throughs is one of the things that people really don't get. I mean, like a layman, I've been in the industry a while, and I might fight my way out of a wet paper bag in a conversation about low voltage ride-through. So if we look at some basic things about having a, a generator attached to the grid. So if the grid is in specification, meaning A, it's present, uh -huh. B, its voltage is within a range that is regarded as acceptable and the frequency of the grid is within a range that is generally the acceptable range then you can keep feeding power into the grid but the inverter or the generator needs to be able to detect whether the grid is present whether the grid has too high or too low voltage or too high or too low frequency yeah and the standards for grid interactivity specify depending on how much the voltage deviates from the nominal you typically have to disconnect fast and you have different standards when there's a relatively low excursion you can wait up to two seconds and it goes really high excursion you have to disconnect within 160 milliseconds so that's the kind of general framework now low voltage ride through 
effectively stipulates that if there is a very rapid excursion or very large excursion, you go from nominal voltage potentially all the way down to zero volts. So right. something, let's say a tree or something fell across the grid and shorted the grid. You want the, or the utilities want the generators to continue to pushing power even though there's a short circuit on the grid. Because what happens is that short circuit, the current is detected and there are devices called reclosers that effectively automatically circumvent that short circuit on the grid right. and allows the grid as a whole system to recover and isolating the fault onto whatever feeder that fault occurred on. The feeder being the localized area where power is coming from the distributed source to feed homes in that network, okay, or businesses or whatever. So if you're looking at a dumb response would be like, oh, we have an instantaneous loss of voltage in the grid. Uh -huh. I'll disconnect and stop producing power. Now, there's another consideration in this fact is when complying with the standards, if the grid interactive inverter detects an abnormal condition, it must disconnect, and the second thing is when it does disconnect, it needs to then wait five minutes before reconnecting again. Right, and this is from famous Rule 21. Yeah, Rule original, even 1741 right, right. or IEEE 1547, which mm -hmm. is substandard. So if you now look at this scenario, you have a high penetration of solar, and if you have an event where the grid disappears, mm -hmm. And if all those generators would drop offline and then wait five minutes until they come back, you can imagine it's a problem because the utility has to schedule all their power production. Right. So you have base load and then you have peaker plants and other things. And if you have a very large portion of the generators just disappear for five minutes, it's a big problem. Right. So the low voltage right through effectively stipulates that even if the voltage drops significantly, you stay connected as a grid interactive inverter for an extended period of time, up to one second. To see what happens. Yeah, see what happens. So that's really to create a bit more stable grid with high penetration of solar. And so a very long time is considered a second, not a minute. A second. Okay. Because typically these quote-unquote reclosers, the right. devices that automatically try to isolate I any pass. fault on the grid, mm -hmm. they generally operate in the order of 100 milliseconds, 150 milliseconds. They are wow. relatively fast. That's amazing. Yes. Huh. I understand now the safety features. Now, the original UL1741 has recently, and I don't know how what recently means, but has a supplemental addendum, right? And that's effectively adding this notion of low voltage ride through, free frequency regulation, and even reactive power, yeah? Reactive, yes. Yeah, and so I'm familiar not so much on the residential scale, which is where you know we saw problems with Hawaii and even in California, but I'm familiar with the idea of introducing uh, frequency regulation and reactive power mainly because of the requirement by PREPA in Puerto Rico on utility scale projects to provide that as well. How does that provide safety and benefit for the utility, both at a residential scale as well as a utility scale? Why is that important for our power conditioners to be able to provide that service to the utility? So if you look at them, this is an interesting conversation because people, originally you talk to some people in there coming from the utilities, who cares about the five kilowatt inverter on a residential right. property on a large feeder? It has zero impact. It can barely move the needle. Yeah. And that is a true statement, but it all goes back to levels of penetration. Right. As the level of penetration of solar increases and the total percentage on that feeder 
of properties having solar is high, now as an aggregate resource, they can actually help either regulate the voltage on the grid dynamically mm -hmm. or provide reactive power local if, if need be. And so in layman's terms, what does reactive power mean? That's yeah. generally a difficult thing to explain. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Sure. So alternating current, I think many people understand. It's sure. current that alternates. Uh -huh. And the shape of that current is sinusoidal. Yeah. We talk about alternating current, but in any electrical system, there's also a voltage. Right. So there's really an alternating voltage as well. Both of them are sinusoidal shapes. Yeah. So you start at zero and then it increases to peak and it goes through zero right. and it's a negative voltage uh -huh. and a current. In a system that where the waveform for voltage and waveform for current are perfectly aligned. Uh -huh. and there's, they're superimposed on each other. Yeah. And you can't really see that there's this thing with the two yeah. sine waves. Then you have a perfect power factor. I mean, they're perfectly in phase. The voltage yeah. and current is perfectly yeah. in phase. Now, if you're looking at practical things, and this is, I'm trying to make it simple, That's but in perfect, an electrical yeah. circuit, you have a current and a voltage. And when you have a load that connects the positive or one of the two terminals, right. then the current flows yes. through that load. But loads have different characteristics. There is a simple resistor, uh -huh. so it's just a resistor. So now you have a voltage current, everything tends to be working fine. But other loads, they tend to have other, let's call them non-resistive elements. They tend to be either capacitive or they appear to have a resistor and a capacitor as part of the load. And fluorescent lights, for example. Mm -hmm. Other loads tend to have some inductive component to it. So it's something like a motor. So what happens with that practically is that the load itself would like to consume current either slightly ahead of the voltage uh -huh. or current slightly lagging the voltage. Okay. So it really causes stress on the system because the load is not perfectly aligned, the current and voltage is not perfectly aligned. So as a generator, I mean, from a centralized generation point of view, you see the aggregate of all these loads out there and you have an aggregate set of capacitive, resistive, inductive loads that's gonna demand current slightly out of what is called phase right. uh -huh. of voltage. And that's what you do on a centralized level. Well, you can do it even on a residential level on a single building, or if you now could aggregate set of resources and manage them as a pool or on a node. And a node, then you could control delivered reactive power on that feeder. So I could see how that is actually extremely beneficial for an ISO and for a local sort of regional level utility. Thank you for explaining that. There's more to it. I was trying to be uh, simple. Well, look, I <laughs> am not an electrical engineer, and I actually am beginning to understand that now. Well, you know, another element in particular that I know you guys have to deal with a lot at Empower and that the inverter companies are required to, to manage as a part of their technology implementation is the NEC code, which was implemented back in 2014, which is 680.12, right? This is the notion of rapid shutdown, and it's something that I feel like people pretend to understand, and they sort of qualify it as you know the ability for system to to shut down instantaneously based on a local fault. But I think that for the most part, maybe man, I'm a former you know I'm a recovering panel sales guy, so I would have loved to been able to understand this even better. Do you think you could help me understand the difference of well what rapid shutdown implies and means, and certainly for a technology company, how to think about implementing it, and then the difference between the revision for 2017 
versus the implementation in 2014? I think if you have to start looking back is what is the National Electric Code? Uh It's basically a set of standards, again, driven from a safety perspective that provide a framework for any electrical installation. Doesn't matter if it's solar, you put in lightning system or anything else in any dwelling, any property. And that standard was is, is actually developed by the National Fire Protection Agency, mm-hmm. NFPA. So okay. this, these are the fire marshals that came together and they are the ones who are driving the development of that standard. Mm-hmm. So when you go to a, um, an AHJ, or so authority having uh-huh. jurisdiction, right. the building, the permitting department in any city, the building inspector is going to evaluate the system or the drawing circuits that are proposed according to the National Electric Code right. to the relevant section. And mm-hmm. there's a specific section for solar. So it's fire marshals, NFPA, they are the ones that maintain the National Electric Code. Typically comes out every three years. Okay. Now, as solar became more and more prevalent, uh, there's always concern, what's the impact on first responders or firefighters in particular? So if you're looking at the typical approach for firefighters to fight fires, especially in residential buildings, there are a few different elements. But one of the things that they need to do is they would like to ventilate out any smoke from within the building that take that out. And a very common way of doing that is the firefighter goes up on the roof with an axe and cuts a hole in the roof so that the smoke can get out, the basin can rise out and and you can ventilate the house. Mm So now when you have solar panels on the roof and the firefighters on the roof, what is he or she going to do? So fine, so you cut through the solar panel, hypothetically. And now there's a concern, what if the solar panels or the conductors within solar panels are energized? Could be potentially a shock hazard. That's the more extreme case and the probability of that is slightly lower. But the more probable case is that a firefighter will touch an energized part after cutting it with an axe and feeling that, as we probably all felt, the tingling sensation right. of electricity is flowing through my body, yep. even if maybe it's not lethal. And then from that effect, they get afraid and fall off the roof. Oh, that would be detrimental. Right. So the whole thing really started, that's the background. Okay. So how to make sure that firefighters are safe fighting fires with solar on the roof uh-huh. and they're not put in undue harm. So what happened in up the 2014 edition of National Electric Code is that there was a requirement driven, again, by firefighters. It was initially, there was an attempt to try to, actually, I should rewind the clock. So if we're looking at conventional solar systems mm-hmm. where you have a DC PV modules with direct current output connected in series right. and in a series string to a PV inverter. Right. When you turn off the inverter, that DC circuit is still energized yeah. at several hundred volts. Yep. And that was the genesis. So people said, okay, wait, well, that's dangerous. Because even if you turn off the grid, mm-hmm. meaning the first responders arrive, they turn off the main breaker, right. expecting everything to be de-energized in the dwelling, but long and behold, the solar array still has high direct current voltage. Right. That's a problem. The sun's still shining. Right. Okay. So... The 2014 edition was, there was an attempt to introduce what was called a module level shutdown device so that electrically the modules were disconnected from each other from that serious connection and the maximum voltage would be limited to a safe voltage. Mm. Now there was a lot of maneuvering and politicking in the industry and people looking at for what's the impact and, and conventional string inverters versus module level power electronics devices and the Consensus of the 2014 edition was that 
you need to make sure that within 10 feet of the array, you have the solar array and within yeah. 10 feet of that boundary, the voltage on any conductors beyond that needs to be below 30 volts. Yeah. So now you have an area outside of which the firefighters can ventilate the roof. Uh -huh. So what people introduced were devices called rapid shutdown devices that were typically mounted obviously 10 feet away from the array. Yeah. But the conductors within the arrays can still, still be high voltage. Right. right. Now with 2017 that changed. So now what happens is when the firefighters arrive and they turn off the main breaker of the house, the inverter detects that the grid is gone. Now automatically the system within 30 seconds have to de-energize so there is not a single conductor within the array that has a voltage of more than, I think it's 60 volts. Okay. Or 80. I may have to double check that one. It's either 60 or 80? Yeah. Okay. Maybe 80. I don't recall exactly. But that means now that you need to disconnect on a per module basis. Right. Because how many volts typically is a module? So it depends on the type of module uh -huh. you have. But two modules generally you're over the limit. Uh -huh. In okay. most cases or many cases. So now you need power electronics on the module level. It could be a simple shutdown device. So effectively it just disconnects the output terminals. Right. But you're now adding power electronics with some communication means. Right. And the incremental cost of adding power optimization mm. is relatively small. So right. adding, you can, okay, well, I'm going to the next level. I, why don't I have a full DC optimized system? I can get the enhanced energy yield on top of that. Right. Or a microinverter for that matter, which both type of systems are compliant. Yeah. And is this required on all grid-connected systems in the United States now? And the 2017 edition, I believe, was ratified in early 2017, mm -hmm. or it might have been late 2016. But the rollout, the mandatory rollout, is gradual. Mm. And there's actually a set of tests developed by UL. Equipment that is rapid shutdown compliant needs to be tested too mm -hmm. in order to claim compliance with National Electric Code 2017 rapid shutdown. Now that process, and if you're looking at what's out there, by January 1st, 2019, effectively everything needs to comply with it. Does everything, including retrofitting? No, 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 no retrofit, only new installation. Well, then how do firefighters know that a system is a new system that is compliant versus an old system that is uncompliant? That is a very good question. And in all honesty, I don't have the answer to that. Wow, well, we need to get the answer to that. Huh? I'm wondering who's working on that. I bet I'll reach out to some Pam Cargill or some of the other folks who are working on a lot of this stuff too. And I bet we'll find the answer. Someone will reach out to me on LinkedIn and let us know. But that is a curious position. Obviously, it helps in a forward-looking aspect, but it's not often the new buildings that are burning, but the old buildings. <laughs> I would not want to be in the firefighter's shoes to have to determine whether they've come across a building that's compliant with NEC 2017 versus not. doesn't sound like it's a perfect solution yet. Yeah. So the other thing is, so there's the overall schedule for a rollout of National Electric Corps 2017 rapid shutdown, but... Every state and actually every jurisdiction have, can decide on their own when they adopt the new standards. And there are certain jurisdictions where already adopted their rapid shutdown requirements. So it is happening. Now, I think the good news for the solar industry overall is there's no reason why solar shouldn't be inherently safe. That's right. And this makes solar safer. And, yeah. and I think it's all good for the industry. Perfect. Mika, I've never heard anyone explain in such clear terms with 
what I think were very good examples and relevant historical context. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to have such a wealth of knowledge on Suncast, and I look forward to the next deep dive topic that we get to jump into here with you. Please give my regards to John and the team, and thanks for hosting us. Will do. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, this has been a Suncast nerd session, deep dive mini-sode with Mika Nuotio of Empower Microsystems. Look forward to the next one and let us know if you guys have any other items or points of discussion that you'd like to see us do a deep dive on or mini-sode around. Thanks a lot. See you next time. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.